1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Today, we are joined by a special guest. We are joined by Andy Teodachuk, Dr. Andy Teodachuk. He is a professor of medical education and psychiatrist and an expert in delirium. Andy, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, now, Matt. would you be able to introduce yourself briefly, and then we can start talking about what delirium actually is?
2: Absolutely. So, like you say, um, I'm a professor. I work at Griffith University as an academic in medical education. Uh, I'm also a psychiatrist by background. I work at the Prince Charles in Brisbane. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist specialising in older people. And as such, I would describe myself as being a memory doctor and someone who helps people with mood difficulties as well. As I've got a foot in two camps, education and helping people with memory difficulties, I try and bring the two together and my research interest is in education in regards to delirium in particular so great question what exactly is is delirium (laughs) I mean I was thinking about this on the way in this morning and, and just reflecting on when I was at medical school we hardly touched on delirium and that was just over 20 years ago and now in my day job at the Prince Charles we see so much delirium this is a bread and butter of what we do what is it well I guess in a sense a very good way to think of delirium is that it's acute brain failure. That's, that's decompensation of the brain that happens typically when you have a physical illness. And that's really interesting for a few reasons. I guess, first of all, it's really serious. Acute brain failure has got a poor prognosis, so we need to be very alert to it. Secondly, a bit like, say, heart failure, there's lots of causes to it. And then thirdly, the other aspect about Acute brain failure is that depending on your background, your your vulnerabilities and what the stressor is that's caused that brain failure, you can either come back to normal cognitive function, can be reversible, but interesting we're learning more and more and there's been a huge amount of research in the last 20 years that actually it's quite a critical event in the brain and in some vulnerable people it actually has a long-lasting impact, the actual delirium episode itself. So I guess... Acute brain failure is the simple conceptual idea about it. And in the last 20 years, we're learning so much more about it. And it's so prevalent in today's society, so prevalent in, 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 in hospital practice now. And it, whatever specialty you're in, you're going to see delirium.
1: Yeah, I think, like a lot of people, I've heard delirium before, heard the term. You have a general idea. For me, it conjures ideas of hallucinations, for example, but that's just one aspect of delirium right so you were saying that it's it's multifactorial it's a syndrome so it's a collection of of symptoms um how common is delirium in the community and maybe within hospital as well
2: well like like i was saying before it is common and it is a syndrome like you say it's a syndrome that's characterized predominantly by inattention which is the inability to focus or sustain attention uh, Though hallucinations can be present, like you say, as well. How common is it? That depends on the setting that you're in. So, for example, in the community, it's not as common, potentially under 1%. In a nursing home setting where you have vulnerable people who may have underlying dementia illness, the prevalence can be 10%. In hospital, in older people, the prevalence could be up to, say, a third, Um and then in acute settings where there's been a strong insult uh such as surgical settings it you know can vary 40 to 50 60% and in the really acute settings where where patients unfortunately are very ill um such as ITU or intensive care you know you, you can be up to 60 70 80% as well so it is it is common the problem that we got is that because of our education of a lack of awareness both amongst the public and, and amongst professionals people don't spot it and, that, and that's the big issue that we're against this lack of awareness of what delirium is
3: and so you spoke about it being brain failure so similar to let's say kidney failure or heart failure what you mentioned so when these conditions are not working then you get a whole cluster of manifestations um that you may see as a manifestation um How is delirium just separate from just symptoms? Like, is it um, just a cluster of symptoms or is it its own operating issue? If that makes sense.
2: Um, It kind of makes sense and, and it probably speaks a little bit to kind of sort of how we used to think about delirium maybe in the 90s or even before that, you know, in clinical practice. It's something that occurs on the side. People are... Pleasantly confused or muddled or, or whatever term you want to use, be inaccurate, and people would tend to ignore it. Nowadays, we look at it as a as a distinct syndrome, a diagnostic target, a therapeutic target, something that we need to prevent. And the syndrome is characterized, like I said, by acute changes in your mental state. So you suddenly become unwell, um, uh, inability to sustain attention, so you can't have a conversation with the person typically, Uh, they may be also agitated or uh, actually very sleepy and drowsy, and it will fluctuate as well. Those four kind of main areas are the ones to look out for. Then if you cluster them together, you can make a diagnosis by using a screening tool such as the 4AT or the CAM, the Confusion Assessment Method, and now you've got this diagnosis, then it opens up different treatments different understandings and all kinds of possibilities but previously like i said people in clinical practice will just look at it as an epiphenomena um, and then go right down to trying to treat the cause Um, uh, but actually now we're actually sort of like putting into place specific strategies that we know can help patients non-pharmacological brain optimization strategies for these very vulnerable patients so that's Probably it's that constellation of symptoms together, which is distinct from dementia, um, that we are actually focusing on now. We're using the D word. We, you know, we're stuck with this word delirium. It's not a great word. If you look it up in, yeah. in Google, you get a whole bunch of songs, but you won't get you won't, <laughs> you won't get the illness. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we're using the D word. We're labeling it, and we're trying to be proactive. And then vulnerable people, who've not got the D word delirium, we're actually trying to prevent it. Because it's easier to prevent delirium than to treat it.
1: Okay, so when we look at the cause of delirium, so obviously it's multifactorial. Yeah. Uh, it, it manifests, like you said, in in a number of different ways, and you can assess that. So, would you say that there's there's predisposing factors and precipitating factors? So there's you know maybe some underlying. Um, factors that are requirements maybe, and then there's other precipitating factors that sort of give it a little bit of a push to occur. Can we talk about a little bit some of these predisposing and precipitating factors?
2: Yeah, that that's absolutely central to the understanding, this predisposing, precipitating or vulnerabilities, stresses. And if you have that conceptual framework in your head, you're going to practice more effectively. And actually, when I talk to patients' families about why their loved one has come in, maybe not confused on the hospital ward, become suddenly confused, I use those terms, and it makes sense, particularly for them to understand how acutely someone can change, uh, and then their behavior can be very different. So I guess the way to look at it is that, I don't know, Matt, Mike, we're all at risk of delirium. You're quite young, potentially, um, <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> <Potentially>, <laughs> thank you. Potentially, thank <laughs> you. And therefore, you're not too vulnerable to the illness. What you will need is a very acute stress, something you know which is quite um,
1: a significant insult. A
2: significant insult, indeed. So maybe something like meningitis or you know a severe head injury, um, and then you will become delirious. The problem that we've got is that most people who come into hospital are are older and they are vulnerable. So they only need a very small stressor. Maybe they go to the hospital, their medications get changed, it's a different environment, they lose their cues. And then in those very vulnerable patients, they will become delirious. And the real challenge that we've got is sometimes patients are so vulnerable, perhaps they have an underlying dementia or illness, we don't actually identify identify what the actual cause is and therefore as clinicians we're all guilty of diagnostic errors and people say well absence of a cause therefore it can't be delirium and then we ignore it well that's that's not the case you've got that syndrome that i explained to you you've got those features that inattention that acute change you call it delirium you start treating it and you start educating the family and the staff about what we what we're dealing with over here but typically people would say and this isn't years gone by well he had a UTI, she had a UTI, this older person maybe with dementia. They got confused, they're still confused. The UTI is gone, therefore it's not delirium. But that's just faulty linear logic, unfortunately. So that's why this concept of stresses and vulnerability is so important. And just to pick up on it, you know, you asked me beforehand, what's the prevalence? Well, it depends on where you are. In certain settings, the populations are more vulnerable and therefore the prevalence will be higher and then the final thing to pick up about the stress vulnerability model which you know goes back to the uh, work of Sharon Inouye and new young colleagues and um, uh, is that it opens up the possibility of prevention I said before it's really hard to treat acute brain failure really hard but we can prevent it so if let's say Mike or Matt your your elderly grandmother goes in the hospital she's going to be at risk. Staff there need to be aware of that this is somebody who's at risk of delirium. She might not be delirious when she's there but let's put into place the factors which will stop her acutely decompensating in the hospital so she doesn't get delirium because if she goes in the hospital and gets delirium her prognosis unfortunately is not going to be good.
3: So with the vulnerabilities can you Spill out a few more besides age. Are there other things that in your experience that you've seen that will predispose someone for delirium? Not so much the precipitating factors, just the vulnerabilities to yeah. start with.
2: Yeah, I mean, age is an important one. Um, as I said before, uh, neurodegenerative disease, such as a dementia illness, will lower the threshold, at which point one might become uh, acutely delirious. Uh but there's other factors as well. General you know, frailty? Yeah, general frailty, absolutely. So frailty is a new concept that is coming in, um, uh, and, and that will be associated, you know, where you are in the frailty index will, will determine your likelihood of getting delirious. Mm. Um, and so bringing those concepts in will open up understandings of delirium. But also other things like, you know, do you have a degree of sensory impairment? You know, pre-existing, exactly. Okay, yeah. Pre-existing hearing loss. You go into hospital. Uh, let's say the ambulance takes your your grandmother into hospital. Uh, they forget to bring her glasses. She arrives there, uh, and they also forget her hearing aids. She's now in a in a in a state of high vulnerability because she's got this this
3: sensory impairment. So do we do we know why that is? So why is it the the visual disability or hearing disability? Would predispose someone to a case of delirium?
2: I guess look, yeah. I I that's, that's a good question, um, uh, and I think one of the great things about these podcasts and talking to people like yourselves is that you know they throw up things that you never thought about. But I guess one of the reasons is that we are all taking cues in to process our environment around us to help sustain attention. Uh, And if you lack the ability to actually process what's around you, your brain's going to start malfunctioning because it's got the wrong cues coming in over there. I mean, I don't know. On a very simple level, if you go to work one day and you're very reliant on your watch and you haven't got your watch, you might feel a little bit out of sorts. Now, multiply that by a lot more. Maybe you can't hear anything. It's very difficult. But the important thing to realize is with delirium, and I think Michael... You use this word. It's multifactorial. Yeah. So you have the hearing. You have the fact that, you know, they've changed your medications. You've had the fact that, you know, uh, you've now got the pain from the fall that's brought you in. You add this all into the mix and then your brain will decompensate or as the Americans would say, you know, you might fall off the horse.
3: Yeah. So I I do like the, the idea of um, calling it brain failure and you compare it to, say, kidney failure. We know with kidney failure, you only kind of see symptoms when, say, 80% of your nephrons are lost. So when you think of brain failure or delirium, we said it's multifactorial. So you're on a baseline or a background, should I say, of a decreased functional reserve, which is the age, exactly. which is all this stuff. And then you just throw in a bit of the precipitating factor and it just pushes yeah. them over edge of their, the brain now becoming dysfunctional.
2: Absolutely. And and we call that cognitive reserve. So uh, I'll give you another kind of way to think about it. Um, the degree of cognitive refer reserve you have will protect you against developing a dementia illness. If perhaps you know, you're an academic or you're someone who's got a high cognitive reserve and you have a dementia illness um, uh, and then you... You know, and, and, and at home, you're, you're just about coping. Okay, you need some care or support to, to, to help you in the community, and then you come into hospital. And then something happens in the hospital, or, or, or which led to you coming into hospital. Therefore, you you decompensate. The important thing to realize is that this person's background as an academic or having a high cognitive reserve means that actually their dementia is actually quite advanced. And then suddenly, acutely, they may become very un unwell because Mm. the fact that they had that high cognitive reserve will mask the fact that they've actually got quite an advanced neurodegenerative
1: disease does that does that that make sense it's a buffering capacity
2: absolutely so you can get you know hoodwinked into thinking well you know what this person actually only had relatively mild dementia well no given his cognitive reserve he's probably got a high degree of neurodegeneration yeah but because he's got that reserve he can hold it wasn't witnessed yeah and then suddenly you know he's lost his hearing aids or whatever he's got this pain or uh, he's mobilized, um, uh got this change in routine Mm. and then suddenly he decompensates
1: i think that's a great way of thinking about i I love the idea of of cognitive reserve and also physiological reserve as well and as you get older that physiological reserve diminishes and that's why it becomes easier to have so aging isn't a disease in itself but it can predispose you to diseases because of that lack of physiological reserve and so i assume cognitive reserve is is very similar actually yes
2: Yeah. And I mean, one of the difficulties, you've heard me say this a lot about the dangers of going into hospital. This is an environment where your medications get changed. Probably one of the kind of sort of biggest causes will be medications. Mm. And one thing that's certainly amongst my community, and you'll see it on Twitter, you know, one of the, the best things you can do when you do have people with a delirium is to actually look at the medications they're on, what's been started lately, get a pharmacist to help you and start perhaps deprescribing as appropriate. The natural response for me as a doctor is to get the pen out and start prescribing, but actually you may want to do the opposite mm. and then sort of help them in that state because you're right, your brain's vulnerable, new, new medications are added in, they might interact with the other ones, and then that might cause you to decompensate, to develop this delirium in particular. It's that acute change in mental state, which is the flag, which makes you think, yes, it's a delirium.
1: So we've spoken about those predisposing factors, like you said, age is a big one. Underlying neurodegenerative disease, such as dementia, is another one. Frailty and other underlying illnesses can be these oh, yeah, predisposing yeah. Comorbidity, factors. Comorbidity, yeah, absolutely. Um, when so and like so, the way I think about dementia, because it is so multifactorial and actually it quite is. difficult to think about, um, I, I think about filling a cup, right? And if if you've got Uh, significant predisposing factors like age or dementia, you filled the cup up quite high, maybe three quarters. But then you've got these... Fa- smaller sort of risk factors that come into play and this may be you know dehydration electrolyte imbalance hypoxia and they're just pouring a little bit more and more water into that cup until at some point that cup's going to overflow and the overflowing of that cup is delirium that's how I think about it Whether yeah. I don't know if it's right or not but I always think that you know the continual filling of that cup yeah. is going to at some point lead to an overflow and maybe somebody who's, who's young without delirium there's not much water in that cup so it's going to take a significant insult to get it to overflow so when it comes to not just predisposing factors but those smaller risk factors coming in like i said so dehydration would be would be one um electrolyte imbalances hypoxia are there any others that come come to mind that you can think about do we know if there's a genetic predisposition for delirium at all
2: uh look i love that cup analogy it's great, and look, I, I'm just conceptually visualizing that cartoon drawing of it. And, and I do wonder if, like you say, you've got these vulnerability factors for delirium and your cup's nearly at the top, and then each of the insults is a little nudge. That's you, it. You, you're nudging it a bit. Yeah, that's you know right. what I mean? Like, And then suddenly if it spills over, yeah. bang, you've got that delirium. Yeah. That's 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 a really good um, analogy. Um, in particular, other, I mean... Your question around genetics, um, I, as far as I'm aware, there's very little work done in that area, um, and, and part of the difficulty is that <coughs> delirium is very heterogeneous. Um, uh, delirium in palliative care is very different to delirium in children, which is very different to, de- you know, delirium in patients who've, um, you know, got psychosis uh, and schizophrenia. Uh, so it's difficult, I think. At, at heart delirium is a field which has unfortunately not had much research funding mm. much interest maybe a bit like maybe dementia research in the 50s 60s mm. um and but it's so common and uh, no, it's so no, common it's so common and, it, and and again going back to the point that i made at start i went to medical school and i think i had a great training but we never covered what i'm doing in my day to day job mm. amazing isn't it it's so common but i think it's because you know because of that lack of kind of sort of focus awareness that we've we've never really sort of looked too much into that we're only starting to understand the pathophysiology and you know that's a story for another day and but really one of the things we're up against is like i said the heterogeneity of the construct Um, uh, undoubtedly there will be some form of a genetic predisposition and it will be multiple genes of small effect but whether you know (laughs) whether that's kind of sort of the whole story or not I I you know, I don't know, it might influence it to have a presentation one might have. But yeah, so that's I'll end that that that, that point by just saying that we really need some good research, some really high quality uh research into, you know, psychomunology and, and 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 all of this to really answer those questions. But I loved your cup. <laughs> I loved your cup.
3: <laughs> um, before we get into a next part, I just wanna Talk about maybe the subtypes, so how um, delirium may present. So in a typical patient, are they um, agitated, are they violent, or are they more quiet, sleepy? How how typically would they present, or would you see them? Yeah,
2: subtypes. I'm, I'm kind of in two minds about this. I mean, typically you go to the textbooks and they talk about the hypoactive one when the patient's very sleepy, the hyperactive one when they're very agitated. Um, and the mixed one which is fine but in practice people do fluctuate between them all Uh, it's a good way to differentiate I suppose and in certain settings one subtype might be more prevalent maybe hypoactive in the palliative care setting and it's important as well because you know you go in the ward you typically spend time with the patients who are you know, demanding the most, needing the most. But actually, we need to be looking at those patients who are very quiet and sleepy in the bed right at the end of the ward. Those are the ones who really are at risk, the hyperactive ones. But I, I kind and of... And could it, be missed. It can easily be missed. Yeah. And, and that's a common theme of this, you know, this podcast today is we mustn't miss delirium. But I, I kind of, in my head, I think that we need to sort of think in a slightly more nuanced way about subtypes. You know, a good... It's not really a subtype, but a good differentiation is... Incident against prevalent delirium. So incident uh, delirium would be delirium that comes on after a patient comes into hospital. And prevalent is the one when a patient first comes to hospital. Why is that important? Because I think if clinical staff, and I'm not just talking about doctors, I think that delirium is something that requires input from all healthcare professionals. So if they all think, you know, the goal for an older, frail person is to avoid incident delirium and use those words, i.e., Avoid them getting delirium, preventing delirium in the hospital, and we're working as a team with that collective aim. That's really useful. So, if people had a more defined language of delirium and spoke about, you know, has this person got prevalent delirium? No, fine. Okay, let's make sure they don't get incident delirium. That's a good strategy. And then the other, the other way to like describe delirium, in addition to hypo, hyper, mixed, is um, in terms of persistent. Uh, delirium and sub syndrome or delirium as well. There's lots of different different ways that we look at delirium. Like it's increasingly becoming clear that in very vulnerable people, um, so their cup's pretty full up. Um, when they have a very big insult, I don't know, maybe some kind of underperfusion of their brain in the context of a cardiac event. Um, that's a big nudge to your cup. Mm. Um. They are at risk of this persistent delirium this is delirium that will not you know will not go away so when well. we look
1: at persistent because obviously delirium is termed acute brain failure so short term yeah so is is it most commonly a couple of hours a day a couple of days weeks how, how do we how do we see it
2: yeah so this is like one of those myths in medicine isn't it so typically we'd always think well delirium is an acute reversible neuropsychiatric condition that'll go away when you treat the cause. Unfortunately it's not not that easy if if, if only it was. So typically I think um uh, people may think unless they're particularly well educated or aware that delirium will last 2 or 3 days and then the person will go back to their baseline no no no. It's not like that unfortunately. In some people it can be. So if you know if Mike, if if, if you you know with your healthy brain got delirious you may well reverse it. But persistent, you know, we can talk months here, yeah, yeah, six months. Uh, I've had patients on the ward who've had a persistent delirium, you know, very vulnerable, around, ongoing insults with an initial very big insult. This is a delirium, unfortunately, which is associated with a very poor prognosis. Um, uh, and it also demands a slightly different uh, approach um, than if we were suddenly to, say, label it as dementia now um, and start treating it as so dementia.
3: That's, that's a good point. So... As a physician, how would you separate that if you've got um, a patient who's older with dementia and then you're su- suggesting that they've got persistent delirium? How do you separate all that?
2: Yeah, that's really, uh, that's a really hard question. But in clinical practice, it is hard to make that distinction. It's that fluctuation in inattention that I was referring to, which give you more of a marker that this could be a delirium. They might suddenly have some good time good cognitive days and not so good cognitive days. Uh, it's that, you know, th- the history is always key. You know, what are the, v- what are the stresses here that, that, that we're up ag- against? Um, what are their signatures if they've got dementia in terms of challenging behaviours? Are we looking at something which is slightly different over mm. here? But I think it's a good question because I think, um, I don't want to go too much into sort of delirium superimposed on dementia, partially because there's not so much research in the area and we need to do uh, a lot more. But, you know, I've been having some good conversations of late with colleagues in the UK and and Ireland, Um, you know, thinking about BPSD, this term which we use in dementia, which is the uh, behavioural psychological uh, symptoms of dementia, and thinking, well, actually, are we actually looking in these people at just like small, not in all cases, I get that, but in some cases, some small acute flicks of, of of delirium, which are occurring in a very vulnerable brain, because we know from the the that um you know the brain gets kindled. So if you've had one delirium, you're more likely to have another one. Mm. You need less of an insult to have that second delirium as well. So, in answer to your question, I would say it's hard to differentiate. If someone acutely becomes confused in hospital, we should treat it as delirium first and foremost. Till proven otherwise you've got nothing to lose by treating it like that if you look at things with your delirium lenses i think you can't do anything but help the patient over there there may well be that when they come out of this delirium that they do have an underlying dementia illness because we know that delirium accelerates your cognitive decline and may unmask a dementia for sure but while there, oh, so
1: there's that, the flip side of it so there's yeah. not just uh, delirium superimposed on dementia. There's delirium being the predisposing factor yeah, yeah. to exacerbate exactly. dementia. Oh exactly. my god! Okay.
2: Yeah. yeah. So th- I mean, that's what that that that's that's what that's what the research in the last twenty years is telling us. Like that your cognitive trajectories get impacted about when you had that delirious episode, a bit like a TIA, and then suddenly you're onto a different trajectory, maybe a dementia trajectory.
1: Mm. So is this where, because you said patient history, particularly when we look at individuals with dementia having delirium. So the patient history, I assume, would tell you a baseline. This is how their dementia usually manifests. They're they're usually like this. Um, They've got a particular um, uh, degree of dementia, severity, however it's looked at. And then you could say, well, these different symptoms they're manifesting. Well, these symptoms are different to their regular dementia. Is that how it's sort of looked at? You'd say, well, they don't usually do this, therefore it's delirium. Is that how it's sort of looked at? We know that the the dementia has a particular profile and this is different to that profile?
2: So, again, dementia is a a broad construct and it's different types. So you might have a DLB, which presents very different to an Alzheimer's, to a vascular, to a frontotemporal. I mean... It's not quite as simple as you say, but I think if someone acutely with dementia becomes more confused yeah. suddenly, it, it, it may be a vascular event. Yeah, in uh, vascular. But I think you should treat that as a delirium, till proven otherwise. Yeah. And acutely confused, it might be that they're manifesting different behavioural symptoms. Uh, and then the good, the good clinician or the good team will then say, okay we have a, you know, high suspicion, this is delirium. We'll do the screening tool to confirm it. And then we'll put into place brain optimization. We'll look for causes and we'll explain to the family what's going on. And we're going to try and normalize
1: and, and try and help this patient who will be distressed. Mm. So you said there's no, there's no, nothing lost in, in treating it as delirium. Yeah. And so in saying that, what do we do to, to treat delirium? So you you stated that a, a lot of physicians try to treat the underlying cause yeah. or the potential underlying cause. Is that not the appropriate approach?
2: That, and that is a, the appropriate approach, and that's how we're trained to do it. And if I got my textbooks out from like 25 years ago, mm. which are somewhere in the garage, maybe, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got them locked away and somewhere. I look, I look up those four pages on delirium <laughs> in, in the 400. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a table, yeah, and it will say... Um, these are the causes of delirium. Wow, Uh, and it might give you a mnemonic to help you. Yeah, remember. So the mnemonic (laughs) is is going to be
1: far bigger now. I assume. Yeah, and no, but 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 the
2: point I'm trying to make is that it's not just about going and hunting for causes because of two things. First of all, what's much more effective is a brain optimization approach that we do. Um, yes, you've got to find the cause, and sometimes because a person is so vulnerable, you may not find that cause. Yeah, and then don't give up. You know uh try and kind of sort of treat this as a delirium, um and if we can treat the cause that's great, and it may be that you treat the cause, but the patient's still delirium because it's multifactorial, and there might be another cause there that you 've not found as yet, so don't limit yourself um uh, to to what you've
3: found so while you're looking or you're exploring the potential yeah. causes, is there things you can do from a therapeutic standpoint to support the brain what's what's the optimization that you spoke about
2: yeah that's um really good question so it's not things that i can do it's things that the healthcare team can do uh look uh so it's about attending to sensory deficits like i was saying making sure that's in place it's about um uh, mobilizing patients it's about orientating patients it's about bringing into place familiar um Familiar kind of pictures or people to understand the behaviours that they're manifesting. It's 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 about reassuring um, the patient. It, it's it, it's 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 about you know um, ensuring that they are not dehydrated. It's about ensuring that they are um, not constipated. It's about so a lot of sure these are
1: non-pharmacological interventions. So th- quite. Easily yeah. done, I assume. Yeah,
2: it's about attending to their care needs, high quality care, um, in particular. Um, isn't it? It's about good sleep hygiene, making mm. sure that they get to sleep. Um, uh, and you know, it's, it's it's about having an approach to a patient who is very scared. We've done delirium videos, and I think Mike, you might have seen one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Patients are terrified when they have a delirium. They are absolutely terrified they can't process what's happening and they feel very threatened it's about making sure that you know when you approach a patient like this you're not labeling that patient as a problem your understanding is the illness mm-hmm. um, and don't react um, in a way taking ownership of that patient making sure that you know this is this is something which is something that we can help on on, on the ward and, and maybe speaking to the carers and family and finding out what kind of approaches help settle uh help settle um this patient so
3: are the patients able to tell you that there's something wrong can they can they kind of have that self awareness that they can tell you doctor this is not me i've got some problems happening
2: so, so, so Yeah, yet another good question here so the the whole problem is that yes if if <laughs> if if someone is you know very distressed they probably can't tell you and especially if they're not got if they've got a dementia illness they can't communicate over there so you have to sort of have a high ability to work with the family to understand or the care is exactly what's happening so unfortunately they can't they, they can tell you they're distressed um uh but um they um they they can't. I'm just trying to think. I'm going through my head and thinking of patients from the past, as um, as, as as you do. Um, uh, I had a patient once many years ago uh, in, in the northeast of England, uh, and he he'd had a knee operation, uh, and he, his knee was sore post-op, um, and he was convinced that the um, staff on the ward were using sticks to hit his knee so he was able to tell me look i think that you know here i am i'm in my home i've got these random people they're hitting me in the knee and my knees were really sore yeah. So there's an older person Um so i was called to the ward as a liaison psychiatrist and um, i went to reassure him yeah um, and explained to him you know actually no 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 have a nice cup of tea a bit of toast sit down with him, try and understand from his point of view what's going on, uh, and then try and kind of sort of explain to him, no, no, you're actually in the hospital, your knee's sore here because you've had the operation, we're here to protect you, to help him. He did understand in that case. So in answer to your question, Matt, could he tell me what's going on? He could tell me what's wrong,
1: Mm.
2: and then it's our job to try and find solutions to help. Now, not all patients would have been able to engage and understand, but certainly when the staff saw me talking to the patient i remember them saying two things they said he's not normally like that you know mm. you've got him on a good day yeah, uh, yeah. but actually no and then they also said um, I, we didn't know that he had that understanding so it's about sharing your understandings a little bit about what's what's what's, what's, what's going on there and um, he you know he had other reasons as to why he was delirious too but he did calm down and that setting.
1: So, is the reason why individuals are more at risk of developing delirium in hospital simply because of the change in setting? It's a, a place that's obviously can um, elicit stress, anxiety, uh, new environment, pun, poor sleep. Uh, all those uh, is is are all of these small factors that add into why the hospital setting is uh, a greater risk setting
2: yeah absolutely. So if you think about if you go into hospital, you come out pretty tired and you say, "Well, that wasn't fun at all yeah, yeah. Now, If you have you know memory difficulties anyway, it's mm. going to be really challenging. So if you put all of that into the mix, and I think in particular the fact that you know you're disconnected from your families, you're disconnected from your supports that's a, that's a, that's a really big factor as well. so one of the interesting things in terms of education is that we know that if you educate hospital staff around delirium you can prevent delirium because they know what to look out for yeah but it's very difficult for them to implement what you've educated within the hospital systems which are set up for an older style hospital maybe from the 50s 60s last year but what we're trying to do now is to educate the carers a lot more um and actually bring them into the conversation as an ally in in care and i think that will help improve their hospital stay yeah you know relax visiting times those kind of things um that will help uh, to really improve but that, that that's that's the risk of being in hospital i'm saying I'm not saying patients shouldn't go to hospital, of course they've got to go to hospital of course yeah, but this is a you know it's a, a twenty first century problem that we've got yeah. and it's because we have much more older, frail, vulnerable people nowadays than we did previously as well obviously so yeah,
1: yeah. and do you, do you think that a, a number of the hospital staff also see that when when somebody is um, in a delirious state they just see them as a difficult patient as opposed to, you alluded to it earlier, there's an underlying illness here and it's manifesting as delirium. This is not the person, this is the illness. But do you think a lot of the staff potentially just go, oh, they're being difficult, you know, and and they're less, I don't want to say they're less inclined to to help, but they are probably um, maybe feel potentially threatened because they don't know what the next action of this individual is going to be, they're not listening to their instructions and all these types of things. So do you think that education of the uh the staff within the hospital on this this isn't the person's fault this is a manifestation of a real illness of yeah. de- of delirium uh would help in the process
2: uh 100% um yeah you you can increase their baseline knowledge um and I would hazard a guess but maybe you know in nursing training or physio training i don't think uh delirium gets the attention that it should do so maybe with that lack of baseline knowledge they will jump to that conclusion but then there's also lots of other kind of subtle conflicting drivers out there which will cause people to work, to act like this so for example you know if you have posters on the wall saying zero tolerance to verbal aggression yeah, yeah. you know this is this is how we're going to act in these yes. cultures over here so that's why uh, A staff member perhaps without that lack of awareness would do that. I mean, the other problem with delirium is it's so hard to treat. Uh, So hard, so complex. Um, uh, And it's almost like a square peg in a round hole. And when things are very complex in a hospital setting, it's very difficult to get a grasp on it. You need an MDT approach, but someone's on their own, so it's very tempting to put your hands up and say, this is too difficult, too difficult. We'll organise for the patient to sort of be moved elsewhere. And that's what we saw in a in a qualitative grounded theory study that we did many years back that actually staff one of the difficulties is because of the complexity yeah. and because of the culture in the hospitals um uh and a, and the lack of understanding and education they don't have an ownership of this patients and therefore it's very hard for them to treat it however things are changing and that that study was done a few years back but that is fundamentally the problem that we're up against it's a bit like you know, if you're an ED um, and if you have a really complicated patient who's intoxicated who arrives and really presents challenge challenges, that patient, you know, is not going to get the best care, unfortunately, because of the difficulty that they present to the systems around them. So that's it. So
3: do matter. you think uh, one of the answers is to have more specialised um, clinicians? Like, you know, you might have a pain specialist team that would come in towards to try and understand and better treat a patient with a difficult pain syndrome could it be a similar approach with delirium where you've got specialized clinicians nurses whatever that would be able to um, come in or educate or do that kind of approach or do you think just a main education through the whole ward through all the clinicians is a more wise approach so just to pick up on the last
2: point education is always very well intentioned the difficulty is implementing translating what you've learned into practice and you need to have education coupled to systems change to systems learning to make sure that the barriers to prevent you from doing the right thing are taken away so education on its own is probably insufficient we need more than that but yeah but but it's necessary you've got to do the education in terms of services that's a an in interesting perspective. We do know that we need to be doing more follow up for patients with delirium, going to the point that I said before that you know it's not something that just goes away. Yeah, it has an impact. You can have post delirium depression, so we need to do follow up. And there are some places that are doing a follow up in the memory clinics of people who've had delirium. But one of the the issues, and and again, what, is that delirium is perhaps what's called a sort of orphan syndrome, orphan illness. All the specialties will encounter delirium. Yeah. ICU, palliative care, ED. Twenty-five percent of presentations will have delirium and ED, and um, they all encounter it. So it falls between the cracks,
1: but no one wants to take ownership of well,
2: it. Well, we we'll, yeah, it's, it's 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 and in one sense it's good because if you ever get invited or go to a, a delirium conference it's a really fun occasion because you meet lots of people that you wouldn't normally hang out with <laughs> different specialties so yeah. it's great fun but in another sense you know the way that we traditionally set up our services in hospitals and cardiology respiratory and all of that yeah. you know it doesn't it doesn't kind of sort of fit nicely for one person to say delirium is 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 our problem yeah. and What's interesting about it is that you need a sort of psychiatric approach to the formulation to understand it. And That's where psychiatrists come in to help. But it's really prevalent in a medical settings, So it crosses that kind of sort of mind-body interface. Yes. So I enjoy going to these conferences because I can talk to medics and sort of give them a different way of thinking about the, the issues, mm. um, you know, in terms of formulating and uh, biopsychosocial approaches uh, or whichever. But I think probably what's needed is maybe just having more of that psychiatry mindset in medical wards, but equally having more of that medical si- mi- mindset in psychiatry settings too, as well. So that kind of greater integration of mental and physical health yeah. will be beneficial. But it challenges the status quo. It of is course, barriers to it, and and, and mental health has always been a sort of Cinderella
1: cinderella specialty yeah it, and and it is difficult i mean matt and i university so matt and i teach patho at university and we find that um when it comes to delirium it is complex and it's very hard to teach students something so complex because it's not just multifactorial in the sense that here are the f- three or four things that cause it it's like we've alluded to earlier there's you know uh, Dozens and dozens and dozens of these predisposing factors that could fill that cup and lead to overflow. But in saying that, I, I've been I watched a, a, a video from the Atlantic, uh, and they interviewed a number of individuals who had COVID nineteen, and one of the physicians who was who was on the show stated, "If I were to design a an experiment to try and produce delirium." it would be COVID-19. Yeah. And it's because, you know, it hits all those factors that yeah. predisposes an individual to delirium. So, the, the lack of oxygen, so the hypoxia, the drugs, the ventilation, being in hospital, not having their family around them, being um, in a new environment, all this time, all these factors coming together and it's producing delirium in young people, people mm. my age, people in their 30s, mm. people in their early 40s, for example. And, What surprised me was what you actually stated just before is it it didn't finish at the hospital. So if they were ventilated and they were well enough to uh, take the tube out and breathe by themselves and then even go home, they experienced delirium episodes at home. Mm. And so when we now we've been fortunate enough in Australia not to have significant number of cases of COVID-19. So, you know, I I assume that this isn't something that we've necessarily seen a lot here in Australia. But would you agree that from what you understand of COVID-19, that it is basically an ideal, for lack of a better term, an ideal scenario for delirium? Yeah,
2: absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head there. It's um, it's that perfect storm, unfortunately. um, And it, it gets worse, unfortunately, because you know, the conditions are created not just for delirium but also for poor care and management of delirium because what we know people with delirium need is a normalisation of their environment. What do they see? They see people all marked up. What do they need? They need their carers there to help them and to interpret where are their carers. They're not there. What's happening in the hospital is absolutely jumping. So what happens, unfortunately, um, people might, you know... Go for antipsychotic medications uh, much more readily, and, and we know that that approach uh, in most circumstances is not beneficial. And um, so, really, you know, the, the outcomes are going to be poor. And um, so, it, it, it is unfortunate. The only silver lining, and going back to your couple, I'm a you know, uh, I'm a half full man. <laughs> uh, you know, the only silver line, lining is that it's put the spotlight on delirium. Maybe it's needed that for the people to wake up elsewhere and say delirium is, is, is a big issue that we face and we need a researcher and we, we need to get a handle and we need to educate, and we need public awareness and we need to,
3: to really get on top of that. So that might be a silver lining. Um, to add what Mike just said about the video, and this might be too hard to answer, but some of the people in the video um, were ventilated, so they were sedated heavily. Mm. Um, they're in i c u and as you said earlier, the incidence of delirium in i c u is very high so if you have a patient who's sedated and for as far as the clinicians are um, uh, well to be they um they're looking at the patient that's they're unconscious but the the patient is experienced delirium yeah, yeah. how do you manage that
2: Look, the principles in i t u are you know are similar to elsewhere which is that brain optimization, attending to causes. Pinch me is a really good one: pain, infection, nutrition, constipation, hydration, medication, environmental causes. Putting that into place. But you're you're right; it's, it's it's a difficult one. And and you know, I've I've listened on the radio to people who've been in ITU for months, and they they talk about the terrifying experiences that they were going through in that setting. I'm not an ITU doctor, um, but I but I would say that. Um, I think it is getting increasing exposure. Um uh, there is some really fantastic materials out there. If you're an ITU specialist working here, I'd encourage you to look up, you know, the Vanderbilt website um with all of the materials and the bundles that exist, the A B C D E bundles, to actually kind of manage ICU delirium. They have a different way of detecting delirium in ICU. Uh, as well, which is obviously slightly altered. Uh, So yeah, ICU doctors, I would encourage you and and, and all staff in ICU to
1: upskill there. So if I were to, right now, hand you $50 million and say, do with this as you will for your research, you can't just go buy a Ferrari and a a nice beautiful home with a swimming pool. What would you do with your research in delirium? What would be your go-to
2: yeah that's a bit of an elevator question, isn't it? It is isn't it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a hard question because obviously we don't
1: we don't sit back and think, well, if I've got 50 million dollars this is the type of research I'll perform but what do you what do you think needs to be done for delirium research from here on out to to better the situation
2: yeah um so I think there's been a lot of research looking at screening of delirium um and I think we need to look more at the monitoring of delirium. Um, so we need to develop tools in practice which will allow us to monitor delirium more effectively and to chart that and in so doing if we can introduce them into practice we can upskill staff by using these tools to actually help uh in 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 that space and i do think that the area particularly of delirium superimposed on dementia and differentiating and and really working closely with the dementia researchers to try and kind of sort of join up our research uh, is critical. Um, I do think we need to look at the psychological outcomes after a delirium um, to see, and perhaps think about how we can do some more systems learning so as hospital systems can learn. Um, I mean, I'm coming from a very education background here, but, you know, what theories can actually inform learning at a systems level Um Uh, I do think that there's a lot of interest in QI um, and we need to fund more QI projects. Um, And then carers involving them in the research process a lot more will be crucial, I think, in terms of finding the solutions to some of the difficulties that that we're encountering. Um, So those are just, just a few off the top of my head and then obviously I'll have to give a strong nod to the pathophysiology side. I think it's really important to understand that you know, the science of delirium. Um, I did a a talk um, on both mice and men with a colleague of mine in Ireland. And one of the reasons we did that together is because we wanted to show that, you know, delirium has got a scientific underpinning um, and thereby people will give it the credibility that it deserves and actually start taking it seriously as a kind of illness rather than that epiphenomena that happens on the side, which we can't do very much and, you know, can be a bit distressing. So that's probably a few areas uh, to pursue further. But like I say, I, I, education actually is probably, I think, a really important area
3: too. Do you think with the, the money that Michael's giving you, do you think it's we gone could... gone now. <laughs> <laughs> you already spent it? gone. <laughs> do you think there could be a diagnostic like blood test or scan? So again, it's um, brain failure kidney failure we have certain kidney function tests or heart do you think we could do the same with the brain some kind of uh, imbalances or some kind of scans where we can see that the brain's not functioning as it should yeah
2: i mean there's obviously a lot of work looking at biomarkers um, in delirium whether it's a csf or a blood test i don't know but one of the difficulties is that we're kind of falling into different camps in delirium you've got the splitters who say you know we should be sub diagnosing delirium into different types in which case absolutely go down that and then the lumpers who are saying oh, we should treat them all together mm. um as one construct one illness as well but yeah th- there is a you know a need to look for uh greater biomarkers uh whether that's blood tests or neuroimaging changes as well but yeah. we are at an early stage of understanding what exactly is is delirium yeah. um like it's only really in the last 20 years that we realise how serious it is. So it's, it's a medical emergency. Um, uh, about 20, 30 years ago, people wouldn't have that awareness. So probably the answer is yes, but we need to uh, have more conceptual understandings about the complexity of the syndrome that we're dealing with.
1: It is difficult because I was thinking about that exact question that Matt asked because obviously the, the kidneys play quite you know specific roles in regards to... Um, homeostasis of fluid management yeah. right and the heart is a pump you know it's it's a, a basic mechanism i shouldn't say basic but it is you know a, as basic of a mechanism as we've got uh but when you look at the brain a lot of things are epiphenomena. a lot a lot of things are things like cognition and alertness mm. and you know being aware of your surroundings, which are hard to measure outside of just asking somebody, right? So there's there's no marker that we've got for, for consciousness or cognition or anything like that. So when you've got acute brain failure, it would be very difficult to to measure what's going on. We know that, like you said, uh, there's a lot of work happening in the pathophysiology underpinning what's happening in delirium. Um, but there seems to be a number of pathophysiological processes That's that right. are occurring, converging on the manifestation of delirium yep. or, or the, all the various point. symptoms. But there doesn't necessarily seem to be one, one where all roads lead to Rome. Rome seems to be delirium, not a particular uh, pathology per se. So it's not as though, as far as I could, could yeah. tell from the literature... You could go into the uh, the a postmortem brain analysis mm. of somebody with delirium and say, yep, that's delirium." Absolutely, by looking at, into the brain, which is which is very different to somebody with heart failure or somebody yeah. with kidney failure, for example. Uh, so you're right. I think the difficulties uh, are there. Um, hopefully, we'll be overcome. Yeah at some point in some regard and I think like you said the research is going really well in the pathophysiology and your education research I think is brilliant and I think more community outreach like the podcast for example being able to tell people um, delirium is a thing it's not just this intangible process that you should forget about that it's actually something that you should be aware about is uh, very important. Is there any final points you'd like to add before we before we leave we're definitely going to have you on again and we're going to talk more about delirium because it's such an important topic. But is there anything you'd like to leave with?
2: Um no, it's been it's been a really good experience, but i um, just to pick up on a couple of your points. Congratulations, Mike, on attempting to read those very complex papers on the pathophysiology it's definitely of delirium an attempt and work out the <laughs> um you know what those graphs mean. They are complex and and it speaks to the fact that the brain just happens to be the most complex organ. Yeah. Um and I think it's not just unique to delirium, but dementia as well. You know, We Absolutely. are much more advanced down the line of treating dementia, but we're still struggling to get treatments. Um, uh, and, you know, if you're looking at the sort of the the, the the post-mortems, can compare it to the clinical notes, it doesn't always add up. Yeah. in Dementia either. So it is, it is very difficult and, and we're trying to do as much as we can. I guess the last message I want to do is really to speak to people who aren't in the healthcare professions but maybe carers or family members of people with delirium who happen to be, um, uh, listening. Um, and just to say that you really have a really important role in helping the team understand your, your relative in hospital, uh, to explain kind of sort of how you might reassure that person or you might interpret what's being communicated. Um, do you know do do understand that it's really important those non-pharmacological brain optimization and that hunt for causes like pain infection nutrition constipation hydration meds environment yeah. is 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 crucial to the success And um, one of the failings that we do have is that we tend to go too quickly to the pharmacological approaches so really we need the carers and your input to help us with the non-pharmacological ones and only an absolute you know Last resort should medications be used um, to help uh, manage uh, patients here. Yeah, but I um, no, do do. I know it's hard um, to to speak to the right people when you've got people in hospitals. But do do keep trying and um, do, do do try and share your knowledge um, and and try and help your loved one when they're in hospital as much as you can. So that's probably all i I'll, I'll say. Um, but look, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, uh thank you for joining us uh, and that's dr matt and dr mike's medical podcast we'll see you soon
0: hey
3: folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues